Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. You gentlemen, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We, we looked at chapter 4 last week. We covered the whole chapter. We're going to cover chapter 5 tonight, verses 1 through 14. What we see in here is hopefully what we long for. Last week, we we got the privilege of looking at chapter 4 and getting a glimpse into heaven. In that lesson, we saw the church there in heaven represented by those 24 elders on 24 thrones with those Crowns on their head, clothed in white. We, we got to talk about the four living creatures, what those living creatures represent. We talked about how they represented the host of heaven. And we talked about seraphim and we talked about cherubim. This week we're going to move into where we're going. When we get to chapter 6, we're going to see judgment. Judgment is going to begin in chapter 6. But before we get to to judgment, we're going to see tonight the worthy Lamb in heaven. We're going to talk about Him, the one that we know, the one that we love. You're going to have to pardon me if at times in this lesson I can't hold it together. Uh, this week as I've prepared, it was a slow process. I would get to certain points where I would uh, long for Him. And I pray tonight as we go through this, that you men would long for the worthy Lamb who was slain for your sin. So as we open our Bibles together, Revelation chapter 5, let's read these first 14 verses as we take another trip and look into heaven, seeing what we are going to see according to the promises of Christ that He made us in John chapter 14. And when He said, if if He goes away... He prepares a place that He's going to come back and He's going to take us to where He's going. And we're getting a glimpse of that. Our our eternal place before the throne. And so Revelation 5, verse 1 says, Then I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. Pay attention to that term, right hand. The right hand of Him who sat on the throne. a, A scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. There's that number seven again, and we learned this early on in this study. That number seven is a number of completion and perfection. He says in verse two, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came 
and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Remember, they said, Let it be. And the elders fell down and worshiped. As we take this trip back into heaven, I want us to see the setting of the scene. The setting of the scene we see there in verse 1. We are back in heaven. This is what we learned in verse four. I mean, chapter four of Revelation, verse one. When he said this, he said, "After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open. Where? In heaven. John was, by the power of God through the Holy Spirit, able to look into heaven to see what was going on in there. And tonight, we're going to see that he is going to see the Lamb." who is worthy. We're going to see why he's worthy. We see the setting of this scene is in heaven. This is the paradise of God. Again, this is the place that Jesus promised that he would rescue the saints and take them back to where he was going, back to the Father. We see there, as we looked last week, the Father and his throne room. We're going to see in his right hand there was this book, and we're going to talk about this book or this scroll a lot tonight. We're going to continue looking at The glory that is in the throne room of heaven, the throne room of God. Just as we talked about last week, in this throne room, there were four living creatures representing the seraphim and the cherubim. We saw this because of Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. When we referenced them, we saw the descriptions that they gave when they saw into heaven through a vision provided by God. Then we looked at the 24 elders. We're going to see them a lot, not only here, but throughout Revelation. We see those 24 elders representing the church. That number 24, as we learned last week, is a smaller number that represents a greater whole. And here they are before the throne of God, the saints of God, clothed in white, again, wearing those Stephanas, victors, crowns upon their heads, The victory that they have, we know that they're going to lay at the feet of Jesus. Those crowns that were earned not by them, but by grace. Through faith alone in Christ alone, who overcame sin and hell and the grave. We see that we're there again in heaven. 
We see the saints of God reigning on thrones that God has provided for them in the presence of God. So we're still there. I found myself this week studying, again, yearning for this place. Ever been homesick? I found myself yearning for home. Why? Because Scripture tells me this, that my citizenship is not in this world. I don't belong to this world anymore. I used to. We're going to see in just a moment that there was a, a lamb who was slain. And he was slain to purchase me and all who would believe for God, giving us a new citizenship. And here we are getting a glimpse into our home. So we see the scene as it unfolds again here today is in heaven. The setting of that scene in the paradise of God. We know as we talked last week, it is the third heaven, just as Paul testified to, that he was transported spiritually. He said, I don't know if it was in the body, I don't know if it was out of the body, but I went to the third heaven. And I can't talk about those things. But John here has been released by God to talk about those things. We're going to see the importance of what he's talking about. We've seen the scene there in heaven. Let's look at the seven-sealed scroll. The seven-sealed scroll. He says, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. This is an anthropomorphism. That's a big theological word. We know this. God the Father doesn't have a right hand as we know a right hand. He's using terms so that we can understand. That right hand is that position of authority. Where did Jesus sit down at? He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So there, right to the right of God, was the throne of the Son. And here in his hand, he holds this scroll. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. A scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Remember, the number seven is God's perfect number, his number of completion. What this scroll is going to contain, and we will see this in the weeks to come, it is going to contain seven judgments of God. These seven judgments, each of these judgments, have a seal, and they are sealed perfectly until the appointed sovereign time. This, this scroll is representing the fact that God's judgments are perfect in all of their nature. They're perfect in their timing. They're going to be perfect and calculated exactly the way that God sovereignly decided that they were going to be in eternity past, just as it is written on these scrolls. There's nothing left out. That's why he says there's writing on the front and there's writing on the back. Every detail of God's judgment, listen to me, is not something that God has to look at as an afterthought and say, oh, they messed up, now I have to do this. These things have been written in eternity past and perfectly written and perfectly sealed seven times. And they're perfectly written and perfectly sealed so that you'll understand every judgment of God is right and it is just and it is holy. Revelation chapter 16, we see this. Revelation 16 says, And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. These judgments are sealed. Why are they sealed? Because there is an appointed time in an appointed season, that God is going to open up these sealed judgments, and we're going to see how He's going to open them up in just a moment according to His plan. But they are perfect in 
every aspect, just the way the Father has decreed. And they are right and they are just. No one's going to be able to say. Those judgments weren't right. God shouldn't have done that. God should have maybe taken it a little more easy on the people. He is going to prescribe them exactly and perfectly the way that he has already designed. We see the significance of these seals on this scroll. Seven of them perfectly placed to represent God's perfect, complete judgments that he's about to pour out. We know that when these judgments begin to happen, this is what we know as the tribulation. We're going to be talking a lot about that in the weeks to come. We are here in the scene in heaven, one step away, one step away from the tribulation beginning. There is significance to the seven. It shows that his judgments are perfect. They will be complete. There's also significance to the fact that they are on a scroll. It confirms God's sovereignty. Remember I said there's writing on the front, there's writing on the back. There's writing on the front, there's writing on the back to show us that these events have already been documented. It's according to his plan. Why is that important? Because this book or this scroll contains the precise order of events in God's sovereign plan, his plan of judgment. Why is that important? Because nothing is going to happen before he says that it's going to happen. Nothing is going to happen contrary to how he says that it's going to happen. So as we in the weeks to come look at how these judgments are going to pour out, they're going to come exactly like he said that they're going to come, and they're going to come exactly when he said that they're going to come. Why should that bring us great comfort? Because we can rest in the sovereignty of God of knowing that he is in control and has already documented precisely every single one of these things. And you're not going to get around them. It's already been decreed. The lost world is not going to get around the judgment of God upon this earth. Please understand that. It has already been written. He knows the beginning from the end. It is already determined and it is already detailed out with precision. So this book or this scroll contains the precise order of events. Write that down in your notes. The precise order of events in God's judgment on this earth. This book or this scroll also contains the prescribed and ordained judgments of God. Like I said, exactly how God says that it's going to happen. Here in 96 AD, as we're reading Revelation, in 96 AD, John is receiving a prophecy concerning the fact that there is a book in the hand of God when he gets a glimpse into heaven that contains every future judgment that is going to happen upon this earth. Again, these are not afterthoughts. God doesn't have to have an afterthought. You know, God has never had an afterthought. These are predetermined and pre-written judgments according to the will of God. And he placed them on this scroll. Why is it important that we see that? Well, let me just tell you this in Isaiah chapter 48, verses 3 through 5. You can turn over there and let's look at it real quick. I won't keep you there long because we've got a lot of traveling to do. But turn over to Isaiah, if you would. 
chapter 48, verse 3. Watch what the Lord says here about judgments that are going to come upon Jacob or Israel as we know him. Verse 3 says, I foretold the former things long ago. He foretold what was going to happen long ago through other prophets. My mouth announced them and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. The sinews of your neck were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Now watch this. He says you're stubborn. You're hard-headed. Therefore I told you these things long ago. Before they happened, I announced them to you so that you could not say my idols did them, my wooden image and my metal little g God ordained them. Do you understand why God has already prescribed and predetermined the events of his judgment in eternity past? And here he's done this so that we realize when they happen, it is God who said that they are going to happen. It is God who said that they are going to happen exactly the way that he has determined they are going to happen, just as he was speaking there in Isaiah of the judgments upon Israel in that text. And so when we look at the scroll that is in the hand of God, it contains these seven, remember seven, perfect judgments of God. Notice what you didn't see. You didn't see anyone take out a scroll and write them down after they saw all the horror and the tragedy, right? Because people say, oh, how can God let these things go on in the world without stepping in? He'll step in when he's already predetermined he's going to step in. And when he steps in, he's going to step in in such a way because it's going to be so accurate to what we're going to see in these seven seals. You can't deny that it's him because he's already written it. What a beautiful thing the revelation is. When we get to chapter 6 all the way to chapter 19 and we see him unfolding his plan to judge this earth and to con condemn sin once and for all. And so we see this seven-sealed scroll, very significant to everything that we will look at tonight. The seven-sealed scroll in verse 1. We see in verse 2, it says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who's worthy to do this? He goes on and it says, But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. No one. He said, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Which brings us to our third point, and that is the search for the seal breaker. They asked this question. This angel, this mighty angel, says, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is it? Who's worthy? This, this mighty angel makes this announcement, this question that he poses to all of heaven. Now, I want you to see this. Now, we, we can talk about who the angel is because everybody wants to ask that question. Who is this mighty angel? Some speculate that it could be Gabriel. Why? Because we see Gabriel speaking. We see him speaking in Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9. We see him speaking again, the birth of Christ, to announce that in Luke chapter 1. Some speculate that it could be Gabriel. Some speculate also that it could be Michael. Why? Because it says it's a, it's a mighty angel. And we know that Michael throughout biblical history was a mighty angel. And some believe it's Michael because of his might as the archangel, which we know that God has given him special credence in calling him the archangel. We see him in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 12, 
We see him again referenced in Jude 9. We're going to see him in Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Uh, we see him fighting there in 12:7 against that great dragon, the devil, Satan, our enemy. And he's fighting also there against those demons, those fallen angels. But we can't draw a dogmatic conclusion on this being, for sure, Michael, as some speculate, or for sure, Gabriel, as some speculate. And the reason that we can't is because Revelation doesn't name this angel. But we can know this. There is a mighty angel here in Revelation. You see how that works? Could it be Gabriel? Sure. Could it be Michael? Sure. Do we know that it's either one? No. What do we know? We know that it is a mighty angel. He has an important role here. And what is his role? It is to announce that all of heaven is searching for something, someone. Someone who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Who is this that they are looking for? It really doesn't matter who's announcing it. Whether you want to believe it's Gabriel or whether you want to believe it's Michael. You guys can fight about that after class. But that's not the point. The point is, who should they all be looking for? And they are. They're looking for the seal breaker. And there's some alarming news there in verse 3. We see the announcement by that mighty angel who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Verse 3 gives us some alarming news. Verse 3 tells us, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. The angels who are not sovereign, who don't know everything, right? They're looking for the worthy one. Where is he? Who is he? No one in all of God's creation throughout history in heaven or earth or below the earth could meet the requirements to open the scroll. Now, I want you to think about something. I want you to remember what we talked about last week. Those 24 elders represented all the saints that have gone before. So when this angel, this mighty angel, announces that we're looking for one who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, no one throughout biblical history was worthy of opening the scrolls. Now, you think about this. In this picture that we see here, before the throne, there was Abraham. He's not worthy. Abraham, represented by those 24 elders. Isaac, not worthy. Jacob, not worthy. Joseph, Moses, King David, not worthy. Solomon, nope. The prophets, not Ezekiel, not Zechariah, not Malachi. Not Isaiah? No one. Maybe surely one of these heroes from the New Testament would be worthy, right? Maybe Peter? Or Andrew? Matthew? Thomas? Bartholomew? What about James? Philip? Thomas? Thaddeus? Surely the Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament, surely he's at least more worthy than me, but he's not worthy enough. They looked in heaven and earth, under the earth, found no one who was worthy. 
all of the saints, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, gathered around the throne, represented by the 24 elders with the 24 crowns clothed in white, sitting upon the 24 thrones. And none of them were worthy. It moves us to the next part, which is the anguish of John. The anguish of John. Verse 4, we find John, and it says this, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Why was John weeping? What is weeping? I can tell you this. John didn't just tear up in the corner of his eye. John was weeping, and this Greek term weeping is an uncontrolled sob. He is sobbing in the throne room of God. And he is sobbing because all over heaven and all over earth, they are looking for the one who is worthy, and there is none who is found to be worthy. And John was weeping because that person could not be found. The worthy one had not been identified. But little did John know in just a moment, we're going to see this in this text, in just a moment, his tears of sorrow were going to be turned into complete worship. To complete worship in awe before the one who is worthy. I want you to know this tonight. His tears represent the heart of those throughout history. Those throughout history who have longed and yearned for the one who is worthy to bring redemption. Can you imagine when we look back, redemptive history, and we talk about Adam? Oh, don't you know that Adam sobbed that day? And sin separated him from God. He was kicked out of the Garden of Eden. That fellowship, that sweet fellowship that he knew, was immediately hindered. Well, don't you know that he sobbed for one who was worthy to bring restoration and worthy to bring judgment upon evil and sin, who was worthy to restore fellowship? Don't you know that from Adam all the way to Abraham, those people who truly loved God and sought redemption by faith longed for the one who was worthy as they cried and as they mourned and as they sobbed with tears, looking for the one who is worthy to bring redemption. And then from Moses... Through the prophets, all the prophets preaching redemption that they never got to see with their human eyes, searching for one and speaking of one who was worthy to open the scroll to bring redemption to sinful man, to bring judgment upon a wicked earth. And they did not see him. All the way throughout history, even of God's elect, who have longed to see the worthy Redeemer face to face. Well, I have seen him by faith, I assure you of this. I've not seen him face to face, but one day I will see him face to face. And oh, think of the longing, as I told you when we started, just longing for him this week has brought me to a place of weeping. Just longing for him, even this night as we gathered and we began to read these scriptures, and I did all I could to hold myself together. It brings me to a place of weeping. Oh, but in just a moment, in just a moment, we're going to see that we no longer have to weep. We can worship. And one day, in His presence, as every tear is wiped from our eye, 
we will experience what John is going to experience here in verse 5. He's weeping. They've searched all over heaven, all over earth. We can't find anyone who is worthy. And John weeps because he knows this. Without the worthy one, there is no hope for anyone. Because we are all unworthy. And verse 5 says this. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He is able to open the scrolls and its seven seals. Verse 6, watch what he says. And then I saw a lamb. Wait a minute. You said you saw a lion. And now you're seeing a lamb. Aren't you thankful today that he's both? That he is the lion and he is the lamb. He says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. I want you to see the slain lamb, and oh, what a sight to see. Oh, what a sight to see. Oh, the day when we get to see the slain lamb in the throne room of God, the one who was slain to purchase us and to redeem us from our wickedness and our filth, who washed us and cleansed us by his atoning blood. John gets to see the lamb who was slain. He sees the authority of the Lamb. The authority of the Lamb. The same Lamb that when John the Baptist identified Him in John chapter 1, verse 29, He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here John is, in heaven, seeing the Lamb, seeing the authority of the Lamb. What do you mean, the authority of the Lamb? This Lamb who was slain is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This goes all the way back all the way back to the prophetic blessing of, a- of Jacob toward his sons in Genesis. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 49. What do you mean, Kirk? Remember when we started this Revelation study? I said, let's start in Genesis. And, and before we ever get to the end, we need to talk about the beginning. We're going to go back to the beginning. Genesis 49, verse 8. Watch what this says. Judah. This is Jacob pronouncing blessings to his sons. He says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son, sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion. He crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his legs, his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nation is his. You can read that in Genesis and miss it. That is a prophecy in Genesis 49 of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is going to come through that line. And it is the Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who will rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords on a throne that God has preordained in eternity past for him 
to set upon in Jerusalem. We see as the lion of the tribe of Judah, but it also says that he is the root of David. If we don't have any biblical knowledge right here, and if you don't have any biblical knowledge about what we're talking about here tonight, I'm giving you some. Pay attention. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he says he is the root of David. What is that talking about? We're talking about lions and roots. We're going to talk about horns. What does all this mean? There's biblical significance to all of it, I assure you. But Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. But you said it was the root of David. If you have any Bible history knowledge, you know this. Jesse is the father of David. And so the root of Jesse is the root of David. He says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. It's talking about the triumph of the one who is of the root of Jesse. We're going to see that this is the Christ. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous one. Jeremiah 23 is talking about what is going to happen when Christ returns to the earth. And he takes the throne that properly belongs to him in Jerusalem, the throne of David. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. In those days, at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. We see that righteous branch again. If he's righteous, I assure you of this, he's worthy, and he's not worthy if he's not righteous. He says, he will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Many people ask, why did God come as the God-man? Why did Christ come as God and man, fully God and fully man? Because there has to be a man set upon the throne of David, just as prophecy has declared. You see how God has it already all worked out in his sovereign plan. And so God came in flesh as a man, God incarnate, so that he can return as a man. God incarnate, once again, to set upon the throne of the Lion of David. Why? Because he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is the root of David. How do we know this? We know this because the prophets have already testified to this. But we know Jesus fulfilled this. Luke chapter 3, just looking at his lineage, verses 31 and 32 of the lineage of Christ in the Christmas story, in, in Luke's first few chapters, many people skip over it because I, who cares about the genealogy? Care about it. Because we learn in that genealogy that Jesus came directly from the line that was from Jesse to David. He is the root of David, the root of Jesse, the one who will eternally set upon the throne of David. How glorious it is to see him using this terminology here. Why? Because judgment is about to come upon the earth. And after the judgment comes upon the earth, guess what's going to happen? The lion of the tribe of Judah 
the root of David, is going to come and he's going to rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years in Jerusalem, just like he promised his people that he's going to do. And he's going to bring in the remnant of Jerusalem. He's going to rule and he's going to reign with them as he promised their restoration. And I assure you of this. He is faithful to keep all of his promises. Jesus will set upon the throne of David. How do I know this? First Chronicles 17 tells me this. First Chronicles 17 verse 11 says, when, when your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. He's talking to the king, David, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established how long? Forever. Forever. I don't know if you've paid attention to history much, but there's no such thing as an eternal throne on this earth other than the throne of David. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Governments come and governments go. I assure you of this, the King of kings and Lord of lords will set on a throne that God has said is everlasting, and he will set upon the throne of David, just as Scripture declares. You say, well, that's a bunch of Old Testament stuff. Watch what Luke says in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. Again, at the announcement of Christ, Emmanuel, God incarnate, says in verse 32 of chapter 1, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will never end. You say, well, why does that matter? Because he's throwing around titles about himself here that says that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David, and that is exactly who he is. Why is that important? Because the root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, will triumph over wickedness forever. His kingdom will never cease. Oh, how thankful we are for that. He has triumphed. He has overcome. Look what it says there. It says there, as we read in 5 and 7 again, Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. What an awesome word. Some of your manuscripts say overcome. Same thing. He has triumphed. What has he triumphed over? What has the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David triumphed over? Well, let's just start with this. How about sin? How about sin for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you. That the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, triumphed over sin. How about death? How about death? He gives us victory through his resurrection. We know that he is alive, and because we know that he is alive, we know that we too will live victoriously forever because of him. He's triumphed. How about hell? Oh, did you know this? Wicked men will face the wrath of God in hell. But righteous men who have been redeemed through the righteous one, I assure you of this, he bore the wrath of God in your place 2,000 years ago at a place called Golgotha so that you don't have to face the wrath of God in hell for all eternity. He has overcome hell for all who believe in him. You see, he is the authority. 
He is the authority, that lamb that John sees here, who was slain, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the root of David. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. We see the slain lamb. We see his authority. But let's look at his attributes. He was slain, but I want you to pay attention to something here. When he talks about the lamb, verse 6, he says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. And the next word is amazing. Standing. Standing. The lamb who was slain. But he's standing. Aren't you thankful that we serve a lamb who was slain, but he's standing? He says, I saw a lamb who was slain, but he's still standing. He was slain, but he is now alive. This is the resurrected lamb of God who was once dead, but is now alive. Remember in Revelation chapter 2 when we were there, the angel of the church at Smyrna was instructed to write this. These are the words of him who is the first and the last. And who did he say he was? The one who died and came to life again. What a day it's going to be when we're ushered in through that door into heaven. And we see that lamb who was slain, who's standing. Oh, many of you have this image of Jesus in your mind on a cross. I assure you of this. He is no longer on a cross. He is a lamb who is standing. He's standing there, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, standing in the presence in the throne room of God. He is standing. He stood up here as the one who said, I'm worthy. Oh, you're looking for someone who's worthy? I am the worthy one. Why? Because I'm the one who was slain, but I am still standing. Proof that he is the resurrected Savior. He is the Lamb who was slain, but is now alive. It goes on to describe for us the attributes of this Lamb further. I saw a Lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. Standing. Why, did he, why is he standing? Because he was seated at the right hand of the throne of God, making intercession for you and for me. But now when they're looking all over the earth and all over heaven, and they can't find one who is worthy, he stands to his feet. Slain, but standing. I am the one who is worthy. And he reaches. And he takes the scroll in the right hand of the Father. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Yeah, I bet they were. I can tell you that's where I want to go first. Everybody talks about, when I get to heaven, I want to see my grandma. I don't want to see my grandma. Oh, perhaps I will see her, and, and what a day that will be. I want to see the lamb that was slain, who is standing. That's who I want to see. I want to encircle him around his throne and tell him he is worthy. He is worthy. The lamb stood, in it, and he, the elders circled around him. And it goes on and it says this, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Most of the time, this is when people read Revelation, they say, man, it got weird, I stopped reading, started talking about Jesus having horns and started talking about seven eyes and really didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Let's pay attention to this biblically. We know seven, right? We, we've covered that since we started. It's a number of completion or perfection. It's God's number that represents those two things. Perfect completion. It says he has seven horns. That means he is complete or perfect in whatever these horns represent. Now, I know this. We have enough deer hunters in the room. 
that if you had an opportunity to shoot the biggest, strongest buck in the herd, or to just shoot a yearling deer with little spike horns, I hope you would choose to take the majestic one, the one who was of more power and strength and maturity. So you understand horns, but let's make it real. They're not talking about antlers. They're actually talking about horns. If you were to travel around the world, you would come across a ram at some point in time. You can actually go to the Rocky Mountains and you can see rams there. You can tell who is the biggest, baddest one in the whole herd. How do you tell that? He has the biggest horns. He has the biggest body. He's the one that when he walks up, all the other ones kind of look the other way. He has authority and he has power and he has strength. Now we know this. In the animal kingdom, one day there's going to be another one who is going to mature beyond him, and he's going to become the head of the herd. Here's the thing about Christ. There is no one who is going to dethrone him or his authority that is represented here. His seven horns represent perfect, almighty strength. It is complete, lacking nothing. That's why we can refer to him as God Almighty. There is no one who ever has or ever will compare to his power and his strength. He is all-powerful. That the Scriptures, when we look at that and we come up with a theological term, we come up with this term. He is omnipotent. That means that he is powerful over all things. The seven horns here represent the fact that Jesus is supreme over all. He is omnipotent Lord. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision. And it says this in verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one, one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was given, watch this, authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Why? Because of those seven horns. Those seven horns that we see here in Revelation that signify the fact that he is complete in his strength and his supremacy and in his reign. It is the representation of dominant, eternal strength and power and might and glory. And then we read on and we see this. Not only did this lamb who was slain, who was now standing, have seven horns, but he had seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What does this mean? Well, let's use the number seven again and let's talk about it. It means something that we're dealing with here is perfect and complete. What is that? We've seen he's perfect and, com and complete in his omnipotence and his power. This is perfect completion in his omniscience. His omniscience is the fact that he knows everything. This again is a reference to the sevenfold spirit of God that we have seen. This is Christ being all discerning. Why is this important? Because he is about to open the seals of judgment. The judgment that he is going to give is deserved. How do we know that it is deserved? Because he has not missed a single thing. Those seven eyes throughout the entire earth. You're not going to hoodwink the all-knowing Christ. He has seven eyes and he is watching through the sevenfold spirit of God, discerning the wickedness of men, discerning their sin, discerning the evil of this world. Many people ask this question, 
Man, it seems like God just doesn't even care about what's going on in this world. I assure you of this. He has not missed a thing. And when it is a time, we are going to see this as we go through the revelation. When it is time, according to his timetable, he is going to execute judgment on every wicked thing that he has seen. He hasn't missed anything. Nothing gets past him. Not in your life. Not in my life. Not in this world. Not in all the conspiracy theories that we can conjure up about the government. One day, the truth is going to get out. There are wicked men. And there are redeemed men. But there is only one who is worthy, and that is the Lamb who was slain. And here He is. We see Him and His attributes here. We see His omnipotent strength. We see His omniscience and knowing all things, knowing that his discernment and his judgments are perfect and complete because he has seen it all. Romans tells us man is without excuse. Why is man without excuse? Wicked, unbelieving man, completely without excuse. Why? Because God doesn't miss a thing. God will not miss a thing. Why? Because his seven eyes that we see here see everything that goes on in this world. The lamb who was slain. He said, Then I saw a lamb looking, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came, and he took the scroll from the right hand, hand of him who sat on the throne. When he took that throne, what that sign, I mean, he took that scroll from the one who was seated at the, on the throne from his right hand, what that signifies is this. It signifies that he is the worthy one that everyone has been looking for. He was able to take the scroll from the right hand of the Father, and he takes the scroll. And watch what happens when he takes the scroll. Verse 8, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Immediately. Immediately, in all of heaven, when the Lamb reached and took the scroll with the seven seals, immediately, we move from the Lamb who was slain to songs of praise. Watch how that happened. The heavenly hosts, the elders upon the throne, which represent the saints of God, and all the angelic beings joined together. What did they join together to do? To praise the one who is worthy. Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, seraphim, cherubim, thousands upon thousands upon ten thousands of angels joining together in a heavenly chorus to sing praises to the one who is worthy of all of our praise. Praising Christ for his worth. Did you know that's what worthy means? His worthness. He is worthy. They began to praise him for his worth. Look what they say there in verse 9, and they sing a new song. You are worthy. Oh, isn't that where we started tonight in this lesson? They were looking for one who was worthy. 
The angel announced, we're searching for the one who is worthy. Who is worthy to remove the seals and to open the scroll? To read the scroll. We, we can't find anyone. And they looked and they looked. Who's worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And they looked and they looked and no one was worthy. But here we have the worthy one. And he takes the scroll. And they testify in heaven that he is that worthy one. Verse 12 says, in a loud voice, they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength. Worthy is the Lamb. They found the one that they have been looking for. They began to praise him for his worth. All of heaven agreed in one accord that he is the worthy one. Not only did all of heaven agree, we're going to see in a moment, but all of creation will agree. He's worthy of praise. They were praising Christ for his worth. They were praising Christ for his work. Look what they say there. Worthy, and why is he worthy? Why is he worthy? Verse 9, you're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. They began to praise Christ for his work of redemption. What, what are they talking about here? We understand the cross, but he says you'll, you'll reign with him on the earth. I told you, we are going to come back. We are going to see that in Revelation 19. We are going to ride back to this earth with the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain, who is standing. We are going to return to this earth and we are going to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years in the kingdom of David. And that throne, after we reign for a thousand years, will be forevermore. What a day that is going to be. They see that He is worthy. Praising Him for His worth. Praising Him for His work. He's holding those they're holding around him those bowls of prayers. What do they describe those bowls of prayers, those bowls of incense, the prayers of the saints? What does that tell us as his children? There's not a prayer that you offer him in sincerity and in accordance with his will that doesn't like the incense that the priest would have burned in the tabernacle make its way all the way to his throne. And he has kept them there, and they are dear to him. Isn't it good to see that our God does care about us, that, that our prayers are not just empty words, even if we don't have the right words to say, even if we can't pray in King James English, our prayers from a sincere heart according to the will of God the Father make it to the throne room where they are kept for all eternity. What a picture there of those prayers being preserved. We see the songs of praise break out by those who are there in His presence holding those golden bowls of incense which are the prayers of the saints. Singing a new song to He who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because He was slain and with His blood He purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We see the songs of praise 
the saints of God. And it says in verse 11, and Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon ten thousands, thousands and upon ten thousands, times ten thousands. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures. Don't do the math there. What he's saying, a number you can't count. He said, They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they too sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So we have the angels joining in. All of God's creation here, praising the Father, praising the Lamb, the Son, all simultaneously worshiping Him. And now we see this, and then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea, and all that is in them, singing to Him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures set, said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. What can we draw from this tonight? That heaven is a place of praise and worship. Heaven is a place of praise and worship. I, I guarantee you this, if you don't like coming to church Worshiping God the Father, worshiping God the Son, lifting up doxology to Him every single week for who He is and what He has done, to sing praise to the Lamb who was slain but now is alive, to bring about victory even in the lives of those like you and me who would believe. It's hard for me to believe that if you don't enjoy worshiping God on this earth, that you're suited for heaven. I don't believe you're suited for heaven. Oh, if church is a chore, not a privilege. I don't believe you'll like heaven at all. In fact, I think that you probably don't belong in heaven. And we know this. Those who belong in heaven are citizens of heaven. We'll yearn for this place. We'll yearn for this scene to unfold before our very eyes, just as it did for John in the Revelation, to see the throne room of God to see all of creation, all of the angelic beings, all of the saints that have gone before, circled around the throne of God, circled around the Lamb who was slain, worshiping and praising Him. Why? Because He is the only one worthy of worship and adoration. Some of you would rather be at a stadium cheering on men in tight pants wearing shoulder pads and a helmet and gathering with the saints of God in rehearsing what we are going to do for all eternity. And that is bow down and show honor and glory and praise to the one who is worthy. I have a hard time with one who claims to be a citizen of heaven, but who has no longing for the throne that is in heaven, who has no longing for the Lamb, who loves this world and the things of this world more than he loves the lamb that was slain, who is now alive. He, and he alone, is worthy. Is he worthy to you? Is he? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this vision into your throne room again. Lord, we thank you for what we see. Because we deserve nothing but hell and judgment. 
But oh, when we see the Lamb who was slain, the Lamb who was slain to purchase men, men like me, a wicked man, a sinful man. You see, the Lamb who was slain to purchase men just like me for a holy God. Oh, how could we say anything other than He is worthy? He is worthy. Lord, I pray for the man who's here tonight who has not seen the worth of the Lamb. I pray tonight that by your Spirit you would open his eyes to see the truth of who Jesus truly is, that he would surrender his life by faith to him so that one day he will see this scene not from the pages of Scripture. He will see this scene unfold as he is on his redeemed, glorified knees in the presence of Almighty God and of the seraphim and the cherubim and all of the host of heaven and the angelic beings, all of the Old Testament saints and all of the apostles and all of the true believers. Lord, give them who have no hope tonight hope of eternal life in heaven as they surrender their life to Christ and are made new. Lord Jesus, we say to you tonight, the Lamb who was slain, but is standing, you are worthy to receive all glory and honor and blessing and power. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world. Thank you.